Welcome to Escrow Out Loud, the SF real estate podcast from Jackson Fuller Real Estate, experts on San Francisco real estate since 2002. Podcast notes with links available at jacksonfuller.com slash podcast. Hello, and welcome to Escrow Out Loud. I'm Matt Fuller, your podcast host and the co-founder and broker at Jackson Fuller Real Estate, a San Francisco real estate brokerage. Today's guest is Janelle Maffei, Chief Mitigation Officer for the California Earthquake Authority, known as the CEA. She's an incredibly accomplished professional, and I'm thrilled to very briefly introduce her. She was hired as CEA's first Chief Mitigation Officer in May 2011 and became their Director of Research in 2015. And currently, her responsibilities include managing the California Residential Mitigation Program and that program's first retrofit incentive program known as the Earthquake Brace and Bolt Program. On top of all of that, she's also responsible for various research projects that will benefit us all through strategic insurance, mitigation, and education goals of the California Earthquake Court Authority. And on top of all of this, she does podcasts. So welcome, and thank you for joining us today, Janelle. Well, thank you, Matt. I'm excited to be here. I get lots and lots of questions about earthquake safety and earthquake insurance here in San Francisco. So I am really thrilled that we finally got a professional in the house to give homeowners and future homeowners some really good advice based on, wait for it, science. I can tell you're excited too, as a scientist, engineer. <laughs> exactly. So in San Francisco Bay Area, all sorts of homes exist, and they're built on all sorts of terrain, from flats and liquefaction to homes bolted into cliffs and a landslide zone. So in the Bay Area, what kind of homes are most vulnerable to earthquakes? Well, I think it's important that you pointed out that there are some ground failure issues that happen during an earthquake. The fault could rupture underneath you if it, you happen to be on the fault. Liquefaction is when you're in those soft, sandy soils and water will percolate up into the sand and it loses the capacity to hold the house up. And of course, landslides can be triggered by earthquakes. But I do hear sometimes people saying, oh, well, I'm on bedrock and therefore it's not as big a problem. Well, the reality is if the fault ruptures close to you, you could have tremendous shaking. And so those land failures or ground failures could exacerbate damage but the reality is you put that earthquake in your backyard and it's the great equalizer. It's just going to cause a tremendous amount of shaking. And the houses that are the most vulnerable are the older houses. And we call an older house a pre-1980 house. And that's because there were tremendous changes to the building code in California for houses in the late 1970s because of the 1971 earthquake. And so the problems with houses were fixed with those code changes. But of course, everything built before then was built to an older code before those seismic codes were readily adopted. And unfortunately, they have vulnerabilities and they're a variety. The top five, unreinforced masonry chimneys, hillside homes, homes that are a soft story where you have a garage on the first floor and the spindly little walls either side of your garage. And then the cripple wall crawl space house, and there's two kinds of those. One is the house just has the crawl space where the house sits directly on the foundation, but there's no bolts. And then the one that has no bolts, but also has these spindly little cripple walls that go around that crawl space that aren't braced. So those are the vulnerabilities. They're really the top ones in California. And we estimate that cripple wall or crawl space house that there are over a million houses with that vulnerability alone in areas of high hazard. 
Okay, so you threw out five there. And as you were throwing out those five, three of them I could completely keep up with. The cripple wall, too, just zoomed right by me. But I was thinking, wow, she's describing San Francisco's housing stock. (laughs) Exactly. So with unreinforced masonry chimneys, that's basically just a brick chimney, right? Exactly. It's pre-1996 would be considered to be an unreinforced masonry chimney, a problem. Okay, so every, pretty much every chimney in San Francisco. Exactly. You look at the construction in the Bay Area, predominantly around the World Wars. And so right smack in that pre-1980, I think it's more than half of our construction at residential is this kind of vulnerable construction. Absolutely. And does just the chimney falling down break everything else in the house? Or is the chimney somehow structural and other bad things happen? It always amazes me that a chimney can cause so much harm. It's interesting because if I look at a one-story house with a light roof, the chimney can weigh almost as much as the house. And so the chimney itself is a hazard if it falls. And when they fall, I mean, the top may break off onto your roof, but reality is the bigger problem is when it peels away from your house, it's heading towards your neighbor's house. They shouldn't be attached to your house. Those older ones really should come down. It's expensive to take them down. It's the kind of thing that you need to plan for. You don't really want to wait for the earthquake to do that demolition for you because then you don't have any control over it. Nowadays, we can't build these fireplaces anyway. We're not going to be able to burn wood for very much longer. And they're not quite the exciting architectural feature that we all thought. So the chimney is just heavy, not adequately reinforced, and not well attached to the house. And this doesn't just apply to the chimneys we can see, but if I have, for example, a unit building with a chimney stack running up that's been encased in plaster, but that's probably serving two or three chimneys in a stack, I'm going to guess that hasn't been reinforced either. Yeah. And so that would be predominantly just load or or mass that's moving in the earthquake. The other thing that is masonry that can be a problem is when you have a veneer. It could either be stone or brick that's taller than, let's say, your waist. The idea here is that falls, that can be a really dangerous situation. And in fact, in the Yountville 2000 and the 2014 Napa earthquakes, there was a death and an injury. Very serious. Children who happened to be sleeping in their living room when the fireplace surround came down. So things that are heavy and not well attached, particularly these older pre-1996 masonry, is just out dangerous. Makes sense when you think about it. So hillside, when we say hillside construction, are we talking about those houses that kind of poke out over the hillside and they've got some stilts, just anything on a hill, all of the above depends, or is there really any kind of thing in particular if I'm thinking hillside house, I should be thinking here? Yeah, well, I think the idea is that any of the vulnerabilities that I talked about, when you have a vulnerability in a house that could cause partial or full collapse and it's on a hill, it just becomes more catastrophic because gravity is going to want to pull that house not just over, but down. So if we have the soft story or that living space over garage vulnerability or the cripple wall house that's on a hill and it comes off its foundation, we saw houses that would just slide down the hill like they're on a toboggan. So anchoring your house to the foundation is first and foremost. There are the unique architectural features pre-1980, and we saw them in the Northridge earthquake in 94, stilt houses, gorgeous houses by a well-known architect that unfortunately became killers in the earthquake. There's just no ability for those stilts or poles uh, sticking out under the house to hold the house up. So that's a very rare condition. We have three neighborhoods with them in San Francisco. I have sold those. Apparently, I've done a very bad thing. I need to call some clients and talk about selling. (laughs) We've got like the neighborhoods that were built out in the 70s, kind of like the late 60s and 70s. We have them. 
they're very much just this house kind of floating in space attached to a driveway on one side, out on concrete piers, four stories up on the other. Yeah. You need to get an engineer and maybe even a geotechnical engineer involved to help you with those. Yeah, absolutely. Not a do-it-yourself project, <laughs> to say the least. So those are hillside homes. On the flip side, not really the flip side, but kind of a, a very different situation is what we've talked about as soft story. San Francisco has just gone through a mandatory soft story retrofit for unit buildings, starting with bigger unit buildings, working back down, but nothing kind of in the single family area so far. But that's a very typical house in San Francisco, say in the sunset, where you've got a big garage door opening on the ground floor, and then the main living level is above that. That would be like a soft story. That's exactly. And so we call it living space over garage in that there's two kinds of houses in that category. And single family is one to four units. So you're right. The ones that they're looking at with the ordinances are typically the five units and above. But it's the same structural deficiency in that what you've done is you've taken a house with lots of great walls on the inside that are sheathed with plaster and maybe some plywood in the newer houses. But predominantly the finishes, maybe they'll crack during an earthquake, but they actually do a pretty good job of holding the roof over the house. And then you take them all out at the first level. And so the soft part is that you've got this nice, stiff house with lots of walls in the second and third floor and really nothing at that garage level. And it's the original finishes on the outside that have no stiffness and strength to hold the house over. And then, of course, the garage door is the worst part of it, because when you take a wall out, you take out the elements in a house that resist earthquake forces. As I said, spindly little walls don't do much for you. So you got all the mass of the house up there on very little wall, and the wall that you do have is not well braced. The nice thing is that we have solutions for these, and it's in a document called FEMA P1100. We worked with FEMA and the Applied Technology Council to create a document that has design methodology for engineers to retrofit these buildings and some prescriptive plan sets for some of the simple ones that we're looking to get adopted into the California existing building code. But there are solutions. And of course, structural engineers and civil engineers with experience in structural engineering can help people retrofit these homes. We definitely have solutions. And the last two things we had talked about were cripple wall homes. And you said one with crawl space. I can tell you I've like seen maybe zero houses in San Francisco with a real crawl space. Maybe a couple dozen. It's really not our thing. Does the other kind of house exist in our housing stock? And what kind of house is that one again? With short cripple walls? Is that what you were talking about? Yeah, I don't want to confuse you. So let's just call it the crawl space house. The house that you've got two to five steps up to that first floor. You have vent holes round below your first floor. You've got an access panel. If you poke your head in that access panel, it might be inside in your closet, might be outside, maybe a partial basement, but you can see the underside of your floor, your lowest living floor. And that is the crawl space house. And there's two kinds of them. One where there are no cripple walls, and those are the short stud walls around the crawl space where your house sits directly on the foundation, but if it's older, may not have sufficient anchor bolts. The one that, that really can be problematic is the one that does have these short stud walls. So once again, you've poked your head under your house, and not only do you see the underside of your lowest floor, but you can see the concrete foundation, and there's a short little wall, wood wall, between the concrete foundation and that floor. And those we are called cripple walls. I think that construction is well known for not being PC, so I don't think that's a necessarily a PC term, but it is in the code. It's used in construction, and it just means a wall that's less than full height. And once again, really vulnerable. These houses slide or topple off their foundation. They're not anchored properly. 
And it's not the dangerous situation of the house that comes down on a hillside or has masonry falling all around it. But if a house comes down two to four feet and you're riding with all your furniture, it can be dangerous. But mostly what it is, is it's extremely expensive to repair and it's disruptive. After the Napa earthquake in 2014, these houses were red tagged and they were not occupiable for as much as two years. I think by on average, the red tagged house not yet occupied two years later. And with less than 6% of Napa residents insured for earthquakes, those folks are paying for the damage themselves, continuing to pay their mortgage, paying for living expenses, moving their families out of the community. They can't shelter at home. They can't be part of the renaissance of their community after the disaster and hundreds of thousands of dollars. And the great thing is the retrofit of the cripple wall house is about, on average, $5,500 in the state of California. So really cost-effective, takes about two to three days for a contractor to do. There are plan sets that can be utilized without getting an engineer involved because they're pre-engineered, and we know they're effective. We did a a three-year study with universities and professionals throughout California, and we know that it can save as much as hundreds of thousands of dollars in earthquake damage. You just dropped so many knowledge bombs there. For people that missed this major one, $5,500 to invest in a Bay Area house is like a rounding error. So if you have this house and you can't step up and $5,500, like let's chat, because that is one of the smallest investments a person can make in their house these days, just dollar wise. I've seen people spend far more on landscaping. That is cheaper than staging a house for sale. And come on, folks, that's just temporary furniture we rent for 60 days. And you can save your house from serious damage from that. So definitely want to drill into that one in a sec. But you have answered in such a succinct way, such a question I have struggled with all of my life, which is, what is a cripple wall? And it is just a wall that is less than full height. And ding! Wow. That's right. And why do we have those in our crawl spaces? Well, if you think about it, it's really before concrete was readily available And they wanted to make the house flat. And of course, they could put furnaces and boilers and things underneath there as well. So that's just how they built the floor. They built a foundation, these cripple walls that made a nice level floor and beautiful bungalows. I mean, gosh, you drive around the Bay Area, you see these amazing pre-1940 houses, absolutely gorgeous, but each and every one of them not properly anchored and not properly braced. So we've talked about these five red flags, for lack of a better term, or issues that really should be aware of. And it basically sounds like if I'm a home buyer or I'm out there looking at homes, the question is, was it built prior to 1980? And if it was, then I've probably got one of these conditions at the very least, most likely maybe one or more. Right. So what I tell people is, and particularly with the cripple wall deficiency, Pre-1996, you can find, unfortunately, the soft story and the masonry issues. And then hillside, that would be a good cutoff point as well for you to be looking at your hillside home. So once again, some major changes in the code in the early 90s. The cripple wall house, which is the most common of these deficiencies, is if you have a pre-1980 house, you may have this deficiency. If you have a pre-1940 house, you do have this deficiency. And that's just because of the codes and the standards at the time. But once again, it very, very simple retrofit. We're going underneath that house and we're providing new anchorage of the wood part of the house to the concrete foundation. If you're unfortunate enough to have brick or stone or no foundation, which is very, very rare, but a really old house might 
then you have to put in a new concrete foundation. So we're talking about more money there. But predominantly, that existing 1940s foundation, if it's in good condition, you can put a new anchor bolt into it at about four feet on center. And then if you have those short little cripple walls, you're putting plywood in and clips at the top. Once again, a contractor can do it in two to three days. We've seen talented do-it-yourselfers do this work. And the materials are typically less than $2,000. Need to get a permit? Absolutely want to get a permit. And you want to do it in accordance with the code. And I know when I mention code, people freak out a bit. I'm not talking about bringing your entire house up to code. But rather, if you're going to retrofit a part of your house, do that retrofit in accordance with the code, with a standard. That way, you're using something that's pre-engineered, something that's been proven to work in an earthquake, and you're finishing it. Just it breaks my heart when someone thinks that they've retrofitted their house, they remember doing some work, but because of finances or something, they told the contractor, you don't have to do the whole thing. And then, of course, the earthquake hits, and they didn't do the whole thing, So, which means they didn't have the solution they needed. So a code-compliant retrofit with a permit, with a licensed and bonded contractor, or as I said, by yourself. This work is slam dunk, the best cost benefit resilience action you can take for your house. It sounds like for around, I think the number was like 5,500, we're looking at being able to do some anchor bolts and then shear walls, correct? Yeah. And you know, and it's important for Bay Area residents, this is not going to come as a surprise that that's the average statewide. It is more expensive in the Bay Area. But if I'm talking 6,500 to 7,000 for, you know, what is just what their median is a million dollar house. 1.5 these days, like way beyond that. I mean, a, a single family is up to like 1.8, you know, and sure, let's triple it. It's 15,000 maybe, but that still is, I mean, that's half of what a roof is, for example. It's a fairly small investment over the lifetime of ownership. There's a couple things. One is that, oh yeah, we did some bracing under our house. Well, make sure that that bracing was right because this is important. And the other one is they'll go, oh, well, besides the, it won't happen to me. The other thing is people are thinking about repairs in terms of, we pay premium costs in the Bay Area. We have a Bay Area markup (laughs) for anything that we do, right? Well, in the event of a disaster, a big disaster, that markup is called demand surge. And that markup can go up as much as 40 to 50% as well. And so you're thinking, well, you may have to completely patch and paint all the surfaces inside of your house. If we keep it on its foundation, that's a lot less than having to get underneath there, shore it up, put a new foundation underneath it, build this new foundation to code, and then repair all the damage for this house having come off of its foundation. And all of that with that demand surge markup after an event. And then so you start to go back and look at that $6,000 retrofit in the San Francisco Bay Area, and still it makes economic sense. We've had some examples of those demand surges already with wildfires destroying properties up north and that taking all of available lumber and contractors in that direction. And you discover just kind of how small and tightly intertwined the Bay Area is. And it's kind of like, do you want to put another quarter in the parking meter or do you want the $80 ticket for the five minutes you're risking it? It's such a risk reward there. You hit on it. My competition is the granite countertop. I always joke that that obviously is for a certain demographic. I don't want to slight folks who economically disadvantaged are trying to find money to do a basic repairs on their house. But the reality is that, yeah, you may not be bringing your friends and neighbors and your guests down into your basement to show them the retrofit. It's not that kind of flashy, but it's the kind of thing that people tell me they sleep better at night. It's the kind of thing that 
it's like just that sense of being resilient. I think we know a lot more about resilience since the pandemic. We know a lot more about how we can be resilient. And um, the idea here is we live in earthquake country. And so what are our vulnerabilities? If it's our house, let's look into fixing that. We always want to have that plan. And there are some opportunities for financial assistance with the cripple wall retrofit. And that is our earthquake brace and bolt program. So what is the Earthquake Brace and Bolt program? I was uh, doing a little bit of reading on this and I was like, wow, is this for real? (laughs) Yeah. So first and foremost, as you mentioned, if you're in San Francisco, we don't have a lot of these cripple wall houses. There are some, maybe a couple hundred. The predominant issue in San Francisco is that soft story. And we are working hard to bring a grant program for the soft story retrofit to California. We're not there yet. But we are there with Earthquake Brace and Bolt, and our registration is open through December 1st. We provide up to $3,000 in a grant to homeowners. They have to be in an Earthquake Brace and Bolt zip code, which is most of the Bay Area, certainly San Francisco. And that $3,000, once again, is for that code-compliant retrofit, must have a permit. You can upload photos and things to show us that you've done it right. You need to be owner-occupied. We're going to have to actually change the law to be able to do this grant program for houses that have renters in it, and we're working on that. But it's been great. I think we're closing in on 16,000 retrofits that we've done throughout California with Earthquake, Brace, and Bolt. And we leveraged the funding of the California Earthquake Authority's Loss Mitigation Fund that's dedicated towards mitigation with FEMA grants. So this is federal funding that comes in, and we put that $3,000 into homes around California. And as I said, Those folks tell me they sleep better at night. They tell me, I've been thinking about this for years. I'm so glad I did it. Not one of them is wishing that they had spent that money on the countertop. It's the same thing with foundations and electrical upgrades. They're just not sexy. However, they save lives and they are of absolute value in of themselves. We've talked a lot about what these homes, these theoretical conditions and what can happen You've been in the world of earthquakes for quite a while with some very real world examples. And I was wondering if you could maybe share some of the things you've seen from earthquakes over the decades. Yeah, I would be happy to because they were so impactful to me. And so I date myself here very easily in that I'm like a young mother in 94 and the Northridge earthquake happens and always very interested in earthquakes. And of course, as a structural engineer practicing in the Bay Area, always designing buildings for earthquakes and, of course, retrofitting. But to go down week after week, I think for over maybe two years, to look at strictly houses and the damage done to houses was an experience for me that I will never forget and really was the entree into what I'm doing now, which was to dedicate my career to making housing, residential construction, more resilient to earthquakes. It was a unique thing. We were working for an insurance company. And so they offered structural engineers to come out and look at their house, regardless of whether the damage was serious or not. The experience was really good because I saw both not a lot of damage in a house to extensive damage in a house and everything in between. And that's important. It's important to see what works as well as what doesn't work. But I also met a lot of different families. And I will tell you that earthquakes drop in on real life. They drop in on a day of the week that just pick the worst day you had this year and that you're dealing with the pandemic. And I met families where the the husband's wife had, for 50 years of marriage, she'd just gone into a residential home and he was no longer living with her. He was lost. I met a 10-year-old. The mother asked me, can I convince him to sleep in his bedroom? And she's wearing a scarf. I could tell she's going through cancer treatment. And I'm thinking, 
this little boy is struggling with more than just that this earthquake dropped in on them and their house had actually done pretty well. He's just carrying the weight of the world on him. And so I saw what it did to normal everyday lives of people and realized that for not a lot of money, we can make that a much less worse problem. We can reduce the impact on that family. And when you add to that just the understanding that you're in earthquake country, that you know to drop cover and hold on, protect yourself from falling objects, you have that plan so that if your child is at school, that you know someone there is going to make sure that they get home safely. I used to work in San Francisco. My kids were here in the Bay Area. Could I get across the bridge in the event of an earthquake? So the plan The thinking about the fact that I live in earthquake country, the making the list of the plan, and there's lots of information online on what to do, the water, the go bag, my house is secure, it's attached to the foundation, everybody knows how to drop cover and hold on, and all of a sudden I've got a resiliency. I've taken the reins, and I am now in as much control as I can be. It's a natural disaster, but it's a disaster because we've built these houses that can't resist earthquake forces. And But we are resilient. We've seen ourselves over the last two years and the resilience that we can drum up in our lives and in ourselves. And lots of great information to help you find that resilience. And as I said, wonderful cost-effective measures to protect you and your family. Of all of earthquakes that you've seen, are they all these very different events that stand out to you for their uniqueness and there's lots of one kind of damage, perhaps in an earthquake that wasn't a Napa, or the shaking might be different, but at the end of the day, the damage is basically all the same. Yeah, absolutely. If you or your listeners are familiar with the shake map that the U.S. Geological Survey puts out after an event, it shows the really bright red colors, and then it goes out like a bullseye to these cool blue colors. And essentially what it's showing is the areas that are hardest hit are in the areas with the bright red colors. And in areas where you felt the earthquake, but it was really, really not a lot of shaking in these blue. Well, if you take that and you Xerox it onto a piece of vellum so that you can move that around, take the same earthquake and put it in different communities, you absolutely have a different experience. So, for example, Napa was a reasonably small earthquake. Magnitude 6 would be considered moderate. The Ridgecrest earthquake significantly stronger, and it was a series. There were two of them. But they were out in a desert community, predominantly on the naval airspace, pardon me, airbase, and the desert houses were very different than the houses that you found in Napa. The Northridge earthquake was very different than something if you put it on the Hayward Fault in our backyard or in San Francisco. The houses in the San Fernando Valley don't have that soft story condition like San Francisco. And the majority of them were built, I mean, it used to be orange groves. They were built after, I think, the 50s. And so predominantly, they may have crawl spaces, but they're pretty well anchored to their foundations. You take that earthquake and you put it in the East Bay on the Hayward Fault in the middle of these swaths of pre-1940 houses, put it in San Francisco with these soft story houses. It is a very different experience. Then, of course, the economic situation of the residents. We saw that in the Oakland fire, the folks in the hills who were able to check into a hotel if they were out of their house. You put that displacement into areas where people are low to moderate income. They don't have those resources to be that resilient. So absolutely, it's different. And so we're trying this year with our Earthquake Brace and Bolt grants, we're actually going to introduce supplementary grants to low-income homeowners. We're trying to meet that spectrum of needs in the state of California by providing additional grants to the $3,000 for homeowners who are income eligible. Because we've seen the program grow, we know it's effective, we want to make it more equitable throughout the state. 
because in addition to whether your house is old or whether it's a direct hit, whether you're on soft soil that amplifies, obviously we know that folks in California who are economically disadvantaged are harder hit. It's just a huge blow to them and it takes them longer to recover. And of course, Katrina, we saw the displacement. We want to keep the fabric, amazing community fabric of the Bay Area. I had seen that in a little bit of the pre-reading, and I applaud your authority for doing what you can to address historic inequities. One of the most eye-opening series I did as a podcast host was about racism in real estate. And it's not a particularly hidden story, but it's not really discussed very much. And the fact that you're willing to do anything in that area, it matters because often there are older homes in areas where the land was less valued to start with. Yeah, it's so important. So important. I mentioned that we do have an owner-occupied requirement in our earthquake brace and bolt that was written into legislation about our grants. We are going to work to get rid of that because we recognize that many people who are in that low to moderate are renters. And so we don't want to be putting money to large development companies and investment companies that own thousands of houses. They should just be doing that themselves. But the mom and pop, they own a couple of houses in a community. We'd like to be able to retrofit those as well. I believe BlackRock, that's you that should be doing some uh, seismic upgrading. But it wasn't mentioned by anyone else. It just <clears throat> got coughed out of my lungs there. Not our fine friends at the California Earthquake Authority. But we have covered so much information here. And I know we had talked about a couple of websites that uh, are available for folks to get this information if they haven't been taking copious notes. Uh, the first of which is, let's see, strengthenmyhouse.com. Yes, so strengthenmyhouse.com has really, really easy to use. will help you figure out your hazard. There are maps that tell you if you're in any of those ground failure zones near a fault, liquefaction landslide. It'll help you with some simple visual cues, identify vulnerabilities in your house. And then it tells you what you should do about that. And we have a contractor directory of companies that do this kind of retrofit and all kinds of information about what you would do if you live in earthquake country and you have, in particular, one of these older houses. So that's strengthenmyhouse.com. General information about the vulnerabilities and the solutions. Earthquakebracebolt.com is currently open for registration right now through December 1st. Not sure if you have one of these houses. Once again, we've got questions. We've got simple visual cues, pictures, videos. Oh, I don't have that house. I've got maybe that soft story house. Or, oh my gosh, that is my house. And it'll help you find out if you're in one of our zip codes and how you might register. And once again, a contractor directory that anyone can use if they're doing this kind of work on their home. Awesome. So again, that was strengthenmyhouse.com. And that one is available not only in English, but uh, Spanish, Chinese, and various other languages as well. So strengthenmyhouse.com and then Earthquake Brace Bolt. And the URLs and links to those will be in our show notes. So don't feel like you've got to write this down while you're driving, because that would be dangerous. It has been such a pleasure having you on the show. But before we go, if I might ask, like, what is the latest research around earthquakes and houses and what you're discovering and researching these days? So first and foremost, the hazard side of it, which is what is the ground doing beneath our feet? Tectonics and all that is ongoing research. The U.S. Geological Survey, California Geological Survey, and all kinds of scientists are constantly studying that. And we monitor that because we utilize that in figuring out just exactly what the risk is to Californians. 
So that's ongoing, and we participate as sponsors when we feel that it benefits Californians. We did sponsor the development of that FEMA P1100, which is plan sets for the retrofit, and we're working to have that adopted into the California existing building code. And then this PEER, Pacific Earthquake Engineering Research Center that is centered at UC Berkeley, utilized universities throughout California and consulting engineers and researchers to study that cripple wall house. So there we got that older house that's got the crawl space. And what we did is we studied the one and two story house that has stucco on it and horizontal siding on it. Just think kind of board and batting around the house to see when you retrofit it, how much do you reduce the damage? And it was eye-opening and confirming that this is something that you want to do. Because, for example, in San Francisco, we found $200,000 in savings. But wait, (laughs) that was for a $200 per square foot replacement cost. Well, we know replacement costs in San Francisco are probably closer to $600. So we're talking about close to half a million, maybe even more in savings to keep a house on its foundation. And obviously, you're saving more in areas of higher hazard because your risk is greater But it is consistently in the high tens of thousands of dollars for even the smaller earthquake that knocks the house off its foundation. Worst for two-story houses, worst for houses that have the wood siding or um, shingles. Stucco seems to work a little bit better, but not as good as getting in there with plywood. And then, of course, they all need to be looked at to see if they need to be bolted. So this was groundbreaking research, confirmed that this is the right thing to do, confirmed that it saves hundreds of thousands of dollars. And we know from past experience with pictures of these houses, this is a red tagged house that you can't live in. If you want to pay to repair it, you're going to have to shore that house up, new foundation, lots of work. So groundbreaking research that confirms this is what you want to look into. This is what you want to do. That is, uh, I've always wondered, stucco or siding? It appears that only would a real estate broker wonder strange things like that. Yeah. But it turns out Stucco's got a little bit of an advantage. Who would have known? Yeah. And it's important to know, it's like a little, everybody knows the word shear walls, which is essentially a wall that you put in to resist earthquake forces. So it's like a little one inch concrete shear wall. Now, mind you, if I design a a building with a concrete shear wall, it's going to be eight to 10 to 12 inches in thickness. So it just, at the beginning in particular, it's stiff, if it's well attached to the house, and that's a really important caveat, because a stucco house from the 40s might have lots of water damage to the connections, it's going to perform better. That's not to say that it won't slide or topple off the house. But if I had two houses and one was wood-sided and one had stucco, I'd do the wood-siding one first. If I had another house that was one or two stories, I would do the two stories first. We have some ideas of the houses that perform the worst. But the reality is all of them benefited from the bolting and bracing to the foundation. Absolutely. You had mentioned that 1980s date, and we've talked about single family homes. Just out of curiosity, does the thinking around condominiums, did it evolve at the same time? Or is multifamily home just a whole different world of earthquake language? It's interesting because in the insurance industry, there's a single family home is a residential earthquake policy and a multifamily home is a commercial policy. So a condominium is a commercial policy. For a structural engineer, when you're designing, it matters a little bit what the occupancy is. Obviously, if you're designing a nuclear power plant, you're going to design to a really, really high standard. But there's not a lot of difference to me in a structure that's got a soft story that has residential in it or has commercial in it. It's a problem. But for residential multifamily, the problem is that there's not one owner. And so if you're a tenant, 
you really are relying on the building owner to understand what a vulnerability might be and to do the right thing. Now, if you move into a condominium, you're making that decision. You are an owner, but you're making that with a large group. And we find that a lot of condominiums are resistant to get earthquake insurance. There may be a handful of people who live in the condominium who say, look, I looked it up. We've got this soft story condition. We need to do something about it. But you have to convince everyone to put their hard-earned dollars down on that. So ownership becomes an issue when you're trying to make important decisions about what to do about a potential vulnerability. Yeah, it's very true. And I actually keep track of the buildings in San Francisco that do have earthquake insurance because it's not something that many do. And, you know, then people ask, well, can I get it? And you're like, no, it's an all or nothing proposition. It's not like you insure the second condo on the third floor from the elevator. Yeah, you can get condo insurance, but what it's covering is what you're responsible for. So it's kind of studs in and contents, contents, of course. Right, right. When you talk about the structure and if you have an older building, with vulnerability, then it has to become an HOA decision. And I think anybody who's lived in that congregate living knows that's not an easy thing to do. Yeah, it's really not because everyone has a different assessment of risk and everyone has uh, a different idea of what they might want to do with their dollars. And it becomes very challenging very quick. (laughs) But that's a whole nother topic. So before we let you go today, is there anything else you wanted to take a moment to mention or anything that uh, I should have asked that I've forgotten to ask? I appreciate that opportunity. And we were both chatting a little bit before we started about the pandemic to talk about a natural disaster in the middle of the pandemic. And we're hoping we're not in the middle. We're hoping we're coming towards the end of it. But I think we saw examples of, once again, of ourselves being resilient. And I don't know about many people, but when we were told to stay home on a Monday, my cupboard was pretty bare. You know, structural engineers who said that we were ready for an earthquake, it was a nice wake up for us. And our kids are out of the house. We shop like what I say, New Yorkers. We'll stop on the way home at the store to get food to cook for that night. And that was a lesson to me that there was a real lack of resiliency there on my part. So I learned a lot about how resilient myself and my family can be. And I would like people to do is to take those lessons or to see where they were vulnerable during the pandemic and just remind themselves that, yeah, I'm vulnerable for this natural disaster. I live in earthquake country, but there are solutions. First and foremost, have a plan. What you want to do is protect yourself from falling objects by drop, cover, and hold on. You don't want to be running by hundreds of things coming off shelves and falling off the walls. So just start out with a plan. Start out with a piece of paper and a pencil and information from the website and start looking at where you might be vulnerable and where you might find help, like an earthquake baseball. Your lending institution might be able to help you. Your insurance agent Lots of people out there who might have suggestions for what you can do to make you and your home more resilient to earthquakes in the Bay Area. Awesome. I really appreciate that. And once again, everyone, take a moment to thank me in uh, having Janiel Maffei from the California Earthquake Authority, their chief mitigation officer, as uh, our guest today. And thank you so, so much, Janiel. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you today. Thank you, Matt. It's been my pleasure. You've been listening to Escrow Out Loud, the SF real estate podcast from Jackson Fuller Real Estate. Experts on San Francisco real estate since 2002. Podcast notes with links available at jacksonfuller.com slash podcast. 